Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, my pleasure to uh, welcome everyone to uh, another episode of our AUA University podcast series. Uh, my name is Dr. Jay Raman. I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health, and I'm chair of education for uh, the AUA. Uh, for this session, I'm really delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Benjamin Davies, uh, who will be speaking to us today uh, about reducing opioid exposure uh, in the perioperative setting. Uh, for those of you that don't know Dr. Davies, and I'm sure there aren't many of you, but Dr. Davies is a professor of urology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Uh, he's the chief of the urologic section at the Shady Side uh, Hillman Cancer Center. And he's also the program director for the uh, Urologic Oncology Program at uh, Pittsburgh. Um, ben, again, thanks so much for joining. It's really my, my pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Jay, for having me. I appreciate it. So I guess, um, you know, maybe to, to sort of set our, our, our audience uh, to, the, to the conversation today, you know, maybe just give me some broad scopes on, you know, Two simple questions. You know, wh where are we with this whole concept of opioids and opioid epidemic? And then, you know, perhaps the rhetorical question, which is, you know, why is reducing opioid exposure a, a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that most urologists now are pretty hip to the situation. Can we deal with these conflicts of making sure our patients are safely medicated and also realizing that physicians' contribution to the opioid epidemic? Is significant. Um, and it's important to kind of take a broad view first, I think, before we take a deep dive into our own urologic data. And let's just think about where America is as it stands now. Uh, we are presently in the worst opioid crisis this nation has ever seen, ever. It's never been as high as it is now. And that has multifactorial reasons. It's not physicians driving that. It's COVID. Uh, and the lack of resources patients can get to get um, help with both people who are abusing narcotics and also uh, help uh, for treatment, uh, long-term treatment that have been ongoing. So we are right now in a terrible crisis. Um, and so for physicians, what can we do about the crisis? Well, urologists, we're not going to do direct things uh, about the crisis, but we can do very simple things. Urologists should remember that we contribute, surgeons contribute about 10% of all opioid prescriptions that are illegal in this country. That data has been mashed around for a long time. It's always pretty solid. Um, so we can not contribute to the crisis by not giving too much drugs. Every paper that's been written on this subject, and honestly, there's been probably too many, um, has shown that physicians give too much opioid. That is like a number one thing your listeners need to remember. We give too much, way, way, way too much. And when we studied it formally, when we were looking just at our prostatectomy patients and nephrectomy patients, we gave about 85% too much. <laughs> and it's not just urologists. That, 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 that number is true across the board. And when you give too much opioid, most people don't do much with it. And most people just put it in the closet or they flush it down the toilet. Um, but when you have that much supply in the system when a son or a daughter comes to visit your patient, um, they steal it and it gets into the community. So to, it's our job for that not to happen. And that kind of problem, uh, we can stop. We can stop the inappropriate circulation of opioids. I'm not suggesting we should stop opioids. 
Um, although in my practice, I pretty much don't give opioids, but that's my practice. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but we definitely can stop the harm that we've, we, we have done in the communities. And, and people often will t ask me, Jay, they'll be, well, you know, I barely give any opioids or I give a little bit or whatever. Um, but they give too much. And we have the data for that we're going to publish soon that the, the average urologist gives about something like 30 tablets of oxycodone for a very easy procedure. Mm. Well, that's ridiculous. You only need about two or three. Most of the time, you don't need any. So we do contribute. And the contributions are significant. The thing that people always ask me is like, Dr. Davies, isn't really the problem like this oh, this stuff from uh, Mexico? It's Mexico's problem. It's heroin from Mexico. Or it's the Chinese fentanyl. I mean, we can't control that. Absolutely not. We cannot, I cannot control that. But people who get into trouble with drugs don't go straight to Chinese heroin. They don't go straight to Chinese um, uh, fentanyl. That's not how people get into trouble with drugs. They start with grandma's oxy and they walk through the problem. Grandma's oxys they can get for free, right? Heroin's pretty expensive, uh, but Chinese fentanyl is not so expensive. So as you walk through your problem with drugs, you walk from pills, then you walk to heroin usually because you can know what it's in it. And then when you become desperate, you walk to um, uh, the cheaper alternatives like uh, Chinese fentanyl or locally grown um, commercial uh, stuff that made on the streets. So, so do you think that, I mean, so is this, is this a U.S. problem? Is this a, a problem that's ubiquitous? U.S., Canada, we go internationally. I, I mean, give me a sense of, of, you know, what's the geography of, of the opioid, uh, either overprescription or, or opioid epidemic? Well, the short answer is this is a homemade problem and it only exists in America, pretty much. And anything that touched America. So the, the borders of Canada are, are filled with opioid problems. So places like uh, um, uh, Toronto have serious problems. Even Nova Scotia has some serious problems. And uh, Vancouver has serious problems. But pretty much just America has the kind of concentrated opioid uh, epidemic that's going on. It does not exist in Europe. There are a few little hotspots in um, the former Soviet Union, um, and that's about it. I mean, it's really uh, it's dramatic. Um, as far as a, in terms of urologic stuff, we have some data on um, international prescribing of opioids, which I find fascinating. And I'll plug my own AUA abstract on this. Why not? Um, it's free. It's been accepted. Um, so we have an abstract in the, um, in the, the in, in the AUA coming up. Just It was a very simple survey, and we sent it out from my email, and we did it on Twitter. We did it through society. So we kind of sent it through a bunch of different avenues, and we asked simple question, how many how many pills do you give your, your prostatectomy, either open or, or minimally invasive? In America and Canada, it's all uh, 20, 25. And anywhere else, and this was pretty well represented, not, you know, none. And well, they give nothing. So it's really an American phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, and I, I think your follow-up question, I'm working, I'm, I'm worried about it. I, I don't know why. I don't right. know why we, we, we are so captivated by opioids in this country. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I have some theories, but I don't have an answer. And I've read probably every book on this topic, as you can imagine. Um, and there are lots of great books. Um, if if your listeners want to pick one out, I have some favorite ones. One's called Dopeland 
by Sam Quinones. Um, that's a beautiful book. He's such a beautiful writer. Um, and he won a Pulitzer or almost won one or was in line for one. And um, it's about how the drug trade in America got Uberized. It's called, I call it the Uber. And if I ever give a talk on this topic, I call it the Uberization of heroin. <laughs> Basically what happened is the Mexican cartel came into America in the 2000s and said, how do we establish an efficient process to get our drugs to Americans? And the most efficient process is to have a text chain to your dealer and he arrives to your front door immediately. And that Uberization of the Mexican heroin in America started in the Middle East, started in the Midwest, and then went very quickly to the to the coasts. And it still exists to this day. Now, of course, federal law enforcement have done a good job of cracking down on a lot of it. And a lot of this Uberization has now turned just to um, Chinese fentanyl. But it's pretty impressive. And the book goes into how they they basically modeled it after uh, tech companies. And they took they took the book right out of the tech companies, and that's how it's distributed. So once that happened, um, they became wealthy, and Americans became more and more addicted. And and one of the things I want to maybe take you back to a comment you made really early on, about maybe five six minutes ago. Tell me, I mean, we we've talked a lot about COVID and obviously the the wide ranging implications, but one comment that you did make that I picked up on is that that. The, the whole COVID epidemic has really exacerbated the opioid crisis and, and maybe just, it's a side, it's a tangent, but, but your thoughts on, on the relationship there or, sure. or, or any, you yeah. know, causality. Well, sure. I mean, what, just think about what happened. Well, first of all, uh, there's so many, so many, th- there's so many things I can think of why that would be, but I'll start with just the obvious psychosocial implications of been stuck in the house and not getting to work and not being able to socialize with people. I think for all of us who are perhaps hyper-social, I'll put myself in that category of being slightly over-social. Um, I won't speak for you. And um, yeah, I mean, you can imagine that's a really devastating. I, I was really happy that I was a doctor and needed to come to work because I mm-hmm. did not like being stuck in my house. So I think that that is a problem. That and... Um, the, the thoughts of desperation and depression that come along with people who already maybe did predisposed to having problems with um, addiction, I think exacerbated. But the real problem is that the programs that were available to help people who were stuck with mm-hmm. abuse weren't didn't exist. They had to shut down and they couldn't they couldn't even get the drugs out. Um, if you Google this, it took them a few weeks, even in New York City, to figure out how to get the methadone to the methadone patients. And there were people struggling to get drugs they'd long been mm-hmm. on. So a lot of the early deaths may have been just because people need to get on the street and get some, get some drugs so they don't die from uh, uh, um, um, coming off of uh, methadone. So um, I, I think it's a big. I think mostly it's psychosocial and lack of availability of, of, of care. Um, yeah, yeah we, are, we are really in trouble with it. I mean, if you ask any cop or. ER doc. I mean, it's devastating. And now it's just in my area here, it's unbelievably bad. Hmm. So you talked about this and and I know you've published on this. Uh, Tell me a little bit about if we just look at urology and we look at, you know, prescribing data in urology and and maybe give give the listeners a little bit of a sense of, you know, some of the statistics on uh, prescriptions, use. Uh, variability, um, and and those sorts of variables within our field. You know, to be honest, Jay, we have, we have some data that we're 
not yet ready to put in a public forum because we're just cleaning it up. There's actually very little data on variability in our field. Um, the data that um, has been published is mostly out of Toronto, which is um, very robust data showing variability in, in minor procedures and, and, and bigger procedures. I mean, the, tr the truth is, I think that the topic uh, is hard. The topic is hard to really assess from a research standpoint uh, because the databases don't always collect all the data we want. Um, you can imagine Sears not really concentrating on prescription rates. Mm. Um, it's very it's very hard to get to. We have some success, but it's been a challenge. Just, but I would say the listeners they probably just see it in their own practice. I know I, we saw it here before I cracked down on it. That you saw some people that would just give thirty of oxys for everybody. You know, they do tend to be older folks who aren't who who haven't changed their practice. I'll be honest, that is true, and yeah, that's across the board. Um, not to say that all older folks who are operating do that, but many here, at least, just refuse to change. And um, I think the younger generation is more hip to the scene, that it's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the stuff that um, I wish I could give specifics, but let's just let's talk about one real big problem about giving a lot of drugs to your patients. First of all, I've already made mention of the fact that their sons and uncles may steal it from them. But mm -hmm. let's say you don't think that's going to happen to your perfect patient. There's actually a persistent chronic abuse of opioids to, for uh, after prescriptions. And in neurology, at least in the Toronto group, it's about 1% to 2% will still be on those opioids when they hadn't been prior to the surgery. So uh, and basically, you've traded somebody who's a, who has a, a problem with opioids. Now, that's a low number when, it's, when you put it in 1% to 2%. But if you do 200 surgeries a year, that's two people you've made... Um, uh, who are abusing uh, narcotics. If you look at surgeries like back surgery, you look at surgeries like abdominal surgery, the numbers goes up substantially to something like 10% in some cases. So yeah, that, that's a major problem. Every time you give that drug, um, you can cause somebody to have an abusive problem. You remember these drugs are no different than what people got sick uh, of in the 1800s and, and in the civil war, and they were opium wars in the 15th century. The drug is no different. We haven't made a different drug. We've known this has been addicted addictive for centuries. Uh, and we kind of pretended it and we kind of made it a little bit more fancy because we added some uh, chemicals to it to make to make it longer lasting or more pure. But it's really exactly the same stuff they were they were using in the Civil War. And in, and in the Civil War there we had addicts all over the place. And mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing different uh, now. So what, you know, in your own experience, maybe I'll, I'll ask you sort of two parallel questions. The first one maybe we'll talk a little bit about is um, when you when you recognize this problem and you went about the whole goal of effecting some change, um, I'll, I'll start off and ask you, how, how did you go about implementing change? What operate? Like, did you pick an index operation? Did you decide I want to streamline a protocol for this? Open, minimally invasive. So, for somebody that hears the first part of this and says, "Wow, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I'm a buyer. I believe it. I, I the data is compelling." But now, maybe walk me through how you translated that into how you may actually made a change in your practice. Uh, that's a great question, Jay. Uh, you know, what I did initially was I found patients who wanted to be opioid free. And that's not that hard. You just ask them, hey, you know, do you want to try and do this without opioids? Um, and that was the first thing. That was just years ago. And 
when we I started with what I thought wouldn't be necessary, minimally invasive surgery, uh, small incisions, we're barely touching any muscle, things three hours long, you go home with a catheter. I mean, we really shouldn't really be torturing people with that procedure. Um, and once I had done that multiple, multiple times, I was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, these patients are fine. Um, yes, you need to talk to the patient about pain. You need to talk to them about the program we're going to put them on, which is two days of NSAIDs and Tylenol. It's really easy. And once I was convinced that I wasn't crazy, that everybody should be doing this, um, I needed help from the leadership, right? Like we all do. And I asked our leadership, Professor Nelson, I said, look, here's, here's my idea. Here's the problem we have in our department. I defined the problem by, by doing a series of research papers on how much we were giving over they were taking. I said, Professor Nelson, we are clearly giving our patients 80% more drug than they need. That's unacceptable. And by the way, we live in Western Pennsylvania where people are dying in the streets of this problem. So maybe we shouldn't be giving quite so much drug, right? It's not that hard of an ask. So with his help, um, we put a directive out and said, look, here's what we're going to do. Um, and we're going to uh, start it right now. I can't force anybody to do anything, but here's what I'm going to do. And every month I'm going to send emails out with graphs to all the attendings about how much drug you use. And you'll see where the other ones are. We're just kind of play this game. And every month we got a report out. Here's where Dr. Davies is and his other colleagues who are minimally invasive and not using drugs, opioids. And everybody watched as our we went forward. Um, and we eventually drove everybody down to about zero. We gave lectures. We, we had to educate the nurses. We had to educate the, uh, the residents. Um, we were very, I was, I texted every attending every month. No matter what they did, I'm here to support you. What can I do to get you down? And everybody went down. Some people didn't get to zero. Some people gave five, but everybody eventually got down. And most importantly, what your listeners should remember is since we're researchers, we did this in a thoughtful way, and we had real patient-reported outcomes all along so that it wasn't me torturing anybody. But we measured every domain that uh, can be measured, anxiety, the mental domain. We, we measured activity. We mentioned pain. We mentioned all those domains of living, basically. And they were better in the no-opioid patients. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine why. It doesn't take a genius to remember why. Well, if you're not mm -hmm. doped up, your activity levels are higher. Um, if you're not doped up, your anxiety is less. There is that, that very well-known phenomena of opioid-inducing uh, anxiety. Um, so with that data, we, we, we published, uh, people have really stopped giving opioids for minimally invasive surgery, basically across the board, unless there's a requirement in the hospital, which sounds easy because it is easy. If the patient wakes up in extreme pain and you've given all the NSAIDs in the tile and they're willing to walk and they're in a lot of pain, I'm not a masochist. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we give them opioids. Mm -hmm. It just that happens very infrequently and we can predict very easily if they need some opioid. And it's something like 5% or 10%. Sure. So, you know, I, I remember, I, I think it was a few years ago, uh, both of our programs are in the in the Pennsylvania uh, Urologic Regional Collaboration, and someone was showing some data on um, reducing or limiting opioid exposure. And they they had taken a they made a, a slide, and I took a picture of it. I may have posted it, and then you sent me back a note saying, "Well, that's just as bad as opioids." And, and I thought to myself, and I brought it to our anesthesiologist, and and they said, "Yeah, it's just as bad as opioids." So I remember that because I guess. How, so, you know, you got this vision, yeah, opioid, reducing opioid limiting. 
Um, I think many of us know uh, Tylenol, NSAIDs, but but how did you sort of get your handle around, okay, what are the other non-narcotic options that I have besides Tylenol and NSAIDs? And I use my example as, as case in point of, we reduced the narcotics, but we were using something else that perhaps was not- uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. you're using Toradol. I mean, uh, Tramadol. Tramadol, correct, correct. Oh God, no. Okay, you know, whenever I give a talk, I always say, I always say, there's like two or three things I want you to remember in this talk. And then I ask the, 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 the audience, Please tell me what these two or three things are. And usually they can't remember. But if there's two or three things I want this audience to remember, please do not use tramadol. Um, and let me go through all the different reasons why tramadol is a bad drug. Number one reason is it actually is not effective at all for pain in about one-third of people. It doesn't work. Um, that's because of uh, it, it requires a specific gene that many people don't have. If you don't have, you're actually giving them a pain drug that doesn't work. That seems silly. Um, it's a very dirty drug. It works on, on, on more than one pain receptor and can really give people seizures in an in, in a significant percentage. Um, it changes a lot of different drug levels. So unless you're like super like a medical doctor, you may not even realize that you're really messing with their heart pills or any of the number of pills. Um, so I, there is almost no, I can never, I can't think of a single reason why you want to give tramadol. I think some people have had good experiences with it, you know, cause they had some very minor back pain as a young person and their doctor gave them tramadol. And so they, you know, in med school, we used to always give, give out tramadol. It's less addictive or whatever. I would dissuade people from, from tramadol personally. I think if you have to give something after a surgery, uh, and, and, and you've, you've ran out of the NSAIDs and you ran out of the tramadol, you can give a low dose narcotic because it's pretty good at doing that uh, with all its attendant problems and you give it a very small amount. Um, yeah. There's actually, I have huge articles on tramadol, how bad it is. Uh, hmm. um, and my friend who's a, uh, who's actually from Toronto, his name's uh, Dave Churlick. And uh, he has on his, um, and I, I've actually never met him. I've talked to him, but he's a really famous guy on pharmacokinetics. He will lose his thing. Um, if you give tramadol anyway. Uh, yeah, it's probably okay in young people who don't take medicines or don't have other co comorbidities, but sure. Yeah, don't. So you, you talked about it. So whether or not you're in academic groups like we are, whether you're in a large uh, private practice, hospital employed, you pick your practice environment. What I think the biggest challenge is, is how do you affect and then sustain change across not just one physician, not just two physicians, but really the whole continuum, right? And and I think what you alluded to was, you know, the, certainly cert, cert, maybe the older physicians, you know, the way we do it is the way we do it because that's the way we did it and that's the way we always did it. And yeah. and so how, how do you how do you crack that nut and and maybe you know um, and yeah. and you know do you have some of your own data of how you were able to take sort of these persons who were probably well established in their practice, thirty oxycodone or pick pick whatever, and and change them and evolve them uh, to to something more you know uh, conscious in 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 delivery. I've been asked this question a number of times, many times, and I used to be very contemplative and philosophical about it. <laughs> I've stopped doing that. <laughs> I think my approach now is I don't know what to do about those people. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm just done. I'm, I'm not here to babysit people anymore. 
and I used to be, that's what I did for many, many years and was kind and, okay, we're going to work with you. I'm over that. I am so over that. If, if this wasn't a very pleasant AUA podcast, I would just give you, I would just let loose. I'm not going to let loose, man. Not going to happen. But I am done with that whole concept of old, I can't change. Give me a break. You know, you're old, you can change just fine. I have some of the finest surgeons I've ever seen were old when they learned the robot, and they're old now and doing a better job than me. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't believe that for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, I think being stubborn is a very unattractive personality, uh, characteristic in a, in a doctor. We all have to learn. We all change. I, I basically don't do anything. that I, When I was a resident, I don't think I knew any of the procedures that I learned as a resident anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think of one. Nope, can't think of it. Maybe open partials on a really hard partial. That's about the only thing I did as a resident I do now. So I've learned over time. I'm old-ish, sort of. You know, I'm getting there. But I'm still learning. I just learned how to do perineal biopsies six months ago. Now I'm a master. <laughs> you know, it's time to learn. I mean, I, that, that's what we do as physicians. And, and with, as far as narcotics, I mean, just ask your patients. They don't need them. You know, it's, it's really it's sad when I see data that we're accumulating and hopefully we'll publish. It's something like 50% of people get a terp, get narcotics after. I mean, give me a break. A terp or vasectomy? None of that needs narcotics. It's ridiculous. And then what about the other end of the spectrum? So you, you have um, a lot of the junior residents coming through. Do you, have you developed sort of, you know, the equivalent of a, you know, a quote unquote ERAS protocol? And have you sort of stratified that by uh, type of surgery, uh, surgical approach? I, I mean, so how, how do you take that concept and, and not say, well, or, or maybe it is, it is, all right, you know, we are minimizing our no narcotics, period, or do you modulate it across, across the, disease, the different operations? So thankfully, I only do about three surgeries. <laughs> That's the great thing about being an oncologist, maybe four on a good week. Um, so it is well known. So the way I did it was the opposite of which way you're thinking, your way most people may think about it. I did it like, uh, you know how like with 529s, uh, it's better to have an automatic system. You know, the money just goes in. Otherwise, you don't you do not do it because I would never remember to put the money in the, in the 529. And my kids wouldn't have any money for college. So I say, look, let's. I deal with the negative. If you're going to give my patient narcotics, you have to text me. Otherwise, nobody gets narcotics. <laughs> so, and that's an across-the-ball rule for every procedure I do, <laughs> including open RPLNDs, Radical cystectomies, open nephrectomies, everything. And that the reason I do that is because that's a super easy thing to remember. Um, and I don't do that many open procedures, so I'm not getting that many texts. But if they do, that's fine. You know, if somebody needs 5, 10 oxys after an open RPLND, I may, I'm, maybe I would need that. That's, mm -hmm. that's not a big deal to me. But at least you're going to text me. And if you have to sending somebody home after minimally invasive surgery, a partial or a a radical prostatectomy, mm -hmm. done minimally invasive, you got to text me before you give them any uh, opioids. So that's how I handle it in my practice. And that's how I would say most people should do it. I mean, I, I like the point you made about, oh, private practitioners, academics, oh, Davies is academics. He's like in a per perch. He can kind of pull this off. And now no, if I'm in a lug pub, lug pub group, how could I possibly do this? Well, I'm calling BS on that, okay? I do as many open procedures as lug pub people do. I mean, I do six or seven open procedures a week. I mean, how many do you want me to do? It's basically private practice, but with Saturdays and Sundays for my research. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, that's the way academics is now. There's the distinction between academics and private practice, I'm sure you'll agree, 
has slowly become yeah, very mad. challenging. You know, um, as much as we want to sit on a perch and be academic, we you know we do that, but it's less less so than it used to be. I think. So we've talked a lot about okay post op, right? So patients had X, Y, or Z procedure protocols, education, texting with the resident. What's the conversation that you have with your anesthesiologist intra-op, right? You know, we're going to give 50 micrograms of, say, fentanyl. We're going to give, you know, two milligrams of this. How, how is that conversation made before we get to the post-op, you know, the intra-op? Yeah. Um, I've been very lucky that I partnered with a uh, anesthesia team that um, is very interested in no narcotics. So uh, that was not a struggle at all. In fact, they were probably more prompting me to get this going than I was. <laughs> so we we have not had that problem in the slightest. Uh, they were they were on top of this before I was. Once I blow it up, they're like, "Oh my god, that's my that's what we like to do." Hmm. Um, yeah, well, they don't they don't give any narcotics in my cases unless. There's a particular reason too. That's great. So I guess as as we're finishing here, um, you know what's the you know what's the take home message? I mean, we've talked a lot about uh, the whole sort of epidemic. The amount of work you've done on it is really quite amazing, and I, I really like the work because I feel like it's so germane for, frankly, every urologist or really any, any surgeon, right? Whether you do open, minimally invasive, whether you do gallbladders, whether you do prostatectomies, um, I think it's it's ubiquitous across all these domains. So what what should be, you know, the take home for our listeners today? Oh, thanks for the kind words, Jay. Appreciate it. Um, I, I think the take home is actually pretty, pretty simple. I would start slowly, examine your practice. Most likely you're giving way too much. It's okay. Start slowly. Start halving what you give. Then from there, ask your patients how they do. How many how many pills? Ask just ask the simple question. How many pills did your patient take after the vasectomy, after the terp, after the prostatectomy, whatever you did to the patient, after the stone surgery? Stone surgery gives way too much narcotic. It's insane. Um, it doesn't even work that well. That's a whole other topic on what on what pills work for surgery um, and why why narcotics are not great for incisional pain. But ne- never mind. Um, I would start slowly. You don't have to change your whole practice, you know, tomorrow after you heard the podcast. So the idea is you you back off slowly and then ask your patient how they're doing. And just keep backing off, back off, back off, back off. I promise you it will go fine. And I would just say you don't have to get to zero, but you have to get to very close to zero. You should be giving four or five pills. And now with electronic prescribing, okay, but if the four or five pills don't work, it's just a matter of my little finger on a little button in my room and I give them more or the PA can give them more. So I would start slowly. You don't have to be anything dramatic and track your patients. I think most people will be surprised that they've been given way, way, way too much over their time. Uh, and then not only are you helping your patient, and it's hard to find this tangible uh, for a lot of people, but you're helping your community. The drugs that you go, that your drugs that your patients are not taking are absolutely going into the community. And if you love your community, you'll stop doing that. That's really great. Well, I, I really want to thank, uh, first of all, the audience for their time. Certainly, Dr. Uh, ben Davies for his uh, his real thoughtfulness and uh, the articulate manner in which he, he really can, you know, give us all the scope of the problem. Uh, for more information, uh, I ask you all to please visit AUA not, uh, auanet.org slash university. 
And again, Ben, thanks very much. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for the invite, Jay. <laughs>